Hello, fellow foodies, and happy October. This week, my book called The Plant Hunter is finally available and can be found on bookstore shelves across the US, Canada, and the UK. In it, I share my life's journey in science, developing new ways to fight illness and disease through the healing powers of plants. It's a book about adventure, scientific medicine, and so much more. To learn more about the book or order a copy, head to my website at CassandraQuave.com. Now, today we have a really great show planned for you. We've been dancing around the ideas concerning the gut microbiome and how microbes that live inside of our bodies are important to health. But we haven't really taken that deep dive yet into the real science of the gut microbiome. And this is why I'm so excited to welcome a friend and collaborator, Dr. Reinald Jones, to the show. Dr. Jones is an associate professor at the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition of the Department of Pediatrics at Emory University, and his office is actually just a few doors down from mine, so we're office neighbors. Um, His research focus is in identifying the functional elements and molecular mechanisms that mediate the interactions between host cells, especially in the gut, and beneficial microbes, also known as probiotics. His current focus is identifying how microbiome-generated bioactive metabolites that permeate from the gut to every organ and system in the body impact the biology and pathology of the host. Reinald is also the founder and director of the Emory Notobiotic Animal Corps, where he uses germ-free animals in his studies into host cell and microbe interactions. In particular, he uses germ-free mice to establish to establish the causality of microbiome-associated phenotypes where he colonizes germ-free mice with a human microbiome and determines if the phenotype observed in the human is transferred to the mouse via the microbiome. Lots of really big terms and lots of really cool ideas, and we're going to dig deeper in and kind of flesh these out. So welcome to the show, Ryan. It's great to see you. You too, Cassie. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, why don't we start with the basics? Can you define for us what is a microbiome and what types of organisms do we typically find in the gut microbiome? Right, exactly. So, you know, the what I tell people is that every exposed surface of your body mm-hmm. is colonized by bacteria, by microbes. I and mean, it's really the collection of microbes that are on that exposed surface that is called the microbiome. So, you know, for example, on your skin surface, you have a collection of bacteria and those would be the the skin microbiome. And of course, the the part of the body that's um, most studied with pertaining to the microbiome is the gut. So inside your gut lumen, you have a community of um, perhaps between 500 and 1,000 different species of bacteria. Wow. And, and together, they um, form the, the microbiome. So that is basically this term, microbiome. It's really the collection of bacteria that you have on uh, any particular exposed surface of your body. And um, I'm going to add to that in that, Remember uh, when I tell my students, um, the inside of your gut uh, in the body is really uh, is really outside of your body. So uh, when you think about your elementary canal, your GI tract, and what's in the middle of your GI tract is really outside of your body. So y- your microbiome that's inside your gut, but it's still inside like a pipe inside your body. So that that would also be, you know, considered to be outside of the body. So um, that that's the microbiome. I that's guess. fascinating. It sounds really complicated, though. I know microbiologists tend to work on one species at a time, and you're saying that there are huge numbers of different microbes in the gut. So how how do scientists go about studying that great diversity in the gut? So absolutely great question. Um, at about 2005, 2010, there was this leap in our capacity to do DNA sequencing. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was really um, what ignited this microbiome research um, revolution that we've seen over the past 
20 years or so, 15, 20 years. So the capacity to do large scale sequencing, uh, DNA sequencing of every microbe in, in the gut or on any exposed surface of the body. And um, you do some clever DNA sequencing and then run it through a computer program and then you can ascribe um, a, a taxonomical sort of um, clade to each of the sequence uh, DNA that you sequenced and therefore you can know that it's a different species or a different type of bacteria that's present in your gut. So you get a, you get a, a measure of how many different bacteria that are there and uh, the, the general complexity, the, the community structure of the bacteria that live inside your gut. That's great. Well, when we think about the human lifespan, does the composition of your microbiome stay the same from childhood through adulthood, or does it change during your lifetime? And, and what kind of leads to those changes, if there are some? Of course, this is, this is um, you know, a contentious issue because mm -hmm. to determine this properly you would have to do a longitudinal study throughout an organism's life right so and in humans you know um, we perhaps we haven't spanned all those years yet so to do that experiment properly you would have to take an individual at birth and then examine the microbiome at birth to weaning perhaps you know 18 months old or something like that as they get the dietary changes and then you follow the microbiome um, through uh, adolescence, puberty, then um, all the way to old age and um, you would have to go all the way postmenopausal uh, influences in women. So all these, all these punctate points throughout your life, um, those could be mark points where the microbiome could change. However, I would say that there is um, a sort of a consensus, an early consensus that, of course, you are born sterile, you're, you're sterile within the wound, you're born and then your first inoculum when you're born comes from the, the birth canal of, of the mother mm -hmm. and then you're on a milk diet for the first, say, 12 months, 18 months of life. So um, you're going to have a bifidobacteria, lactobacillus sort of dominated community for the first couple of years. And then while your food source changes, um, you know, between the age of, of two and five, you will establish a microbiome. And there are some schools of thought that that microbiome is pretty constant throughout your life. Fascinating. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, when we think about what we're eating, really, we're not just feeding and nourishing our bodies. We're also feeding the creatures that live inside of us, right? Per Is it Precisely, yeah. yes. So that early microbiome that you establish with a lactobacillus bifidobacteria, um, that established because the food source is milk, right? It's mm -hmm. the mother's milk. So those bacteria are able to utilize the mother's milk and they thrive during that period. But as your diet changes, then the composition of your microbiome would change. And just like you say, um, I, I tell my students as well, when they're, when they're eating, remember that you're not only f you're feeding yourself, but what you're actually doing is feeding the microbiome that's within your gut. So every time you take a bite of food from now on, think about what only it does for your body, but what, what it does for the microbiome composition within your body. And um, as you say, those, those, um, those comp that co each of those micro microbes, they have to live mm -hmm. and they get a carbon source, a substrate, an energy source, and then they re release little molecules, little, um, little. Some of them could be bioactive. So they, the 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 microbes in your body, get their energy sources from the food that you eat. And really, you know, it, evolutionary, it asks an interesting question: what, what are you really? Are you really a vessel to carry these gut microbes, these thousand different gut microbes around, and go from place to place to forage for food? 
and um, you know you're like um, an analogy that I I heard somebody once give was it's like a bus full of people and the people would be inside the bus would be your microbiome and you go from drive through to drive through to drive through yeah. and you know <laughs> you're uh, you're 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 feeding the uh, the, the people the um, the microbiome inside you if you like so that's that's a way one way to think about yeah Sometimes I know that there can be instances where the microbiome is completely disrupted. And in a one classic example of that can be when someone needs to take antibiotics. So what happens to, to the gut microbiome when you have the introduction of, of antibiotics? Well, um, just to go back to what I said earlier is that mm -hmm. it's generally thought that the microbiome would be pretty constant throughout your life. Mm -hmm. And but to disrupt that community structure, you need something uh, that's impactful. And broad spectrum antibiotic is one of those things that could disrupt the, um, the diversity of your microbiome. So, and of course, you have different antibiotics with different um, modes of action, right? Some antibiotics target gram negative, gram positive, they're different things. So the impact of the antibiotic on the microbiome depends on the antibiotic that that you take. Mm -hmm. But um, the, the the best example of this is a C difficile um, sort of infection. C diff infections, yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, that is that is a terrible debilitating IBD type disease, right? So what happens normally in that that case is that your gut my, somebody's been on a broad spectrum antibiotic and clears out that has cleared out the uh, the microbes from their gut, and then after they come off the antibiotics, it's a race to recolonize the gut. Mm. And um, this Clostridium difficile, this C difficile, C diff uh, bacteria is very good at recolonizing and causes this debilitating uh, bacteria. So that would be um, one uh, sort of effect of antibiotics because you disrupt the um, microbiome um, composition. And just to go further from this, why don't you get C. difficile infection before, right? In, in normal circumstances. Well, that's a concept called colonization resistance. So once you get this colonization, perhaps between the ages of two and five of the microbiome, then that microbiome then serves as one of your frontline defenses against pathogens. Those microbes colonize your gut. They stick their elbows out and help defend against pathogens in your body. And, you know, those those bacteria that colonize your gut from early on, they've got a great deal, right? They've got temperatures of 37 degrees inside your gut, and then you carry them around and feed and feed them <laughs> often, right? So they want to make sure that you're healthy, right? That's a part of the, uh, the symbiotic relationship. So if anything, any pathogen comes along, um, like, you know, the bad E. coli, the salmonella, bad salmonella and things like that, then one of your first line of defenses is the microbiome composition of your gut. That They secrete these little molecules that kill the, the, the pathogenic bacteria. So it's like chemical warfare <laughs> inside your gut in between your, your, your good, your symbiotic gut microbes and any pathogen that comes along. So... Um, just to go further, just to come full circle on that, if antibiotics, when you take antibiotics, you get rid of your natural microbiome, your defenders against the, your defenders that elicit this colonization resistance, then you leave yourself susceptible to a more pathogenic um, sort of infection thereafter when you come off the antibiotics. Yeah, this this brings up a really interesting facet, I think, of the microbiome, because I mean, I think we're all in today's age, we're so, you know, uh, fixated on this idea of sterilizing our hands and, and, and killing germs at all costs. But actually, as, as you're describing it, 
commensal microbes that live in a symbiotic relationship with humans are really important to ensuring our health. And I know from your research approach, you're able to take a really unique look at this because you've actually studied what happens, what types of disease um, phenotypes can result in the absence of a microbiome. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that, like this idea of what happens if there is no microbiome present and, and you know, with the immune system and everything else going on with, with the host? Um, absolutely, yes. So um, I like to frame this, this story by going back in history and going way back in history. Um, so the universe, what is it, 13.7 billion years old or something like that, right? That's, I think, let's say 14 billion, okay? So the, the Earth then is four billion years old and then microbes perhaps appeared on earth say 3.5 billion years ago right so we have that timeline multicellular organisms first appeared perhaps one billion years ago so we have you have two and a half billion years of evolution that the world only included uh, microbes right Mm -hmm. And then one billion years ago, you had um, multicellular organisms appear or start to evolve. So by definition, necessarily, all these multicellular organisms, starting off with little worms and starfish and things like that, they had to have evolved with microbes in the background, right? So it's always been a symbiotic relationship between microbes in the environment and organisms. And um, as I said, those microbes, they're very clever. They evolve very fast and they evolved with us such that we give them benefits and they give us benefits. That's the essence of a symbiotic relationship. So bringing it full forward to modern day living, you know, we evolved on the plains of Africa for the last four million years. So we have evolved a microbiome um, and has profound effects on our um, on our health and disease. Now, the way to examine what is the actual effect of the microbiome on our health and disease is by making an animal like a mouse to germ free status. So basically, it's raising a mouse and completely eliminating the microbes from the that mouse. Every exposed surface it has no microbes on it. And these this technology has existed since about uh, 60 years. So it started in the 1950s. Um, so basically, you can do it because in utero, you uh, that's a sterile environment. So if you take uh, a, a, give a C-section to a mouse and keep the pup inside the, the uterus, and then if you pass this uterus bead in the mouse through an U-shaped tube, such to sterilize the outside and pass it into a sterile environment, then you open up the uterus and there you have a sterile pup from inside the uterus in a sterile environment. And then you have to rear that pup with germ-free food and everything like that. Um, and then you have a germ-free mouse. So it's it's sort of, uh, nowadays we use uh, IVF technology into germ-free mice to generate germ-free mice. So uh, it's uh, technology has advanced considerably um, mm -hmm. to generate these germ-free mice. But the point being is that these mice, these germ-free mice, if you think about it, um, what I just said earlier, it's a situation that's never existed before in a, a billion years, right? There's never been yeah. a multicellular org organism that has existed in a germ-free status. So this germ-free mouse gives us an exquisite reductionist um, um, uh, sort of model that we can at last find what is the actual influence of our commensal microbes on our gut. And uh, the tactics or the approach that we take is, like I said, um, if there's between 500 and 1,000 different bacteria in your gut, 
and we have two different words now. We have commensal and we have symbi uh, symbiotic, right? Commensal bacteria could just be there. They don't necessarily elicit uh, a beneficial effect, but not negative effect either. But a symbiont by, by essence elicits a beneficial effect on the host and the, uh, the host benefits the, the, the microbe. So that's a symbiotic um, relationship. So um, what we can do is discern the commensals from the symbionts um, using these germ-free mice by taking a germ-free mice and just colonizing with one bacteria at a mm -hmm. time. And then you can look at the effect of that colonization of that one bacteria. It's called a monocolonization. And what you're looking for is the development on, of gut tissue. You're looking at the development of the immune system, the, the education of the immune system and how the immune system develops. Um, and also how, um, how these mice digest food as well. Because just like I said, when you eat your plants and everything like that, that serves as a substrate to your gut bacteria and indeed there are reactions in the gut bacteria that go on to release essential chemicals like vitamin d and things like that for our bodies so there's there's the immune side the tissue development side and the metabolism side that, that we look at and and many other things like that I, we could go on like bone development and behavior and um, liver cell development and, and all these things so that's how we can discern which microbes in your gut can other other symbionts that elicit the beneficial effects and there might be others commensals that are just there for the ride yeah that's interesting yeah and, yeah. and that uh, stemming from that finding out which ones are the symbiotic is the next step towards probiotic bacteria right so um, if, if we want to talk about uh, have you discussed probiotic bacteria on this uh, well, we, podcast we, often? We've, we've talked a lot about fermented foods okay, and yeah. a lot about fermented foods as, as potential sources of probiotics in the gut. I think many of the audience are familiar with recommendations to, you know, eat live active yogurt cultures, you know, when taking antibiotics and things like that. But um, before we jump to that, I, I just, I just want to reiterate how, how amazing of a tool this is that from this, you know, incredible complexity of the gut microbiome, which has, you know, thousands of, of microbes, many of which we can't even culture in the laboratory setting still, and, and the ability to go through and one by one, look at these and see, you know, what effects they have on, as you said, the education of the immune system. I think this is an important part is that, you know, we're not, our bodies learn our immune systems develop over time and exposures, and a lot of it's through these interactions with these gut microbiota. Without those, we'd be in trouble, right? I mean, if we didn't have those interactions. And absolutely in early life. So, um, uh, you know, you see a baby crawling on all fours along the ground, okay? Mm -hmm. And what is the natural instinct of the baby after that? Or so the, the, the infant is to put their hand in their mouth, right? <laughs> the the colonizing yeah. throughout where it's going to live and then puts its hand in its mouth so within you know and this is you know an an ancient trait that babies have and you see mothers saying don't put your hand in your mouth or something like that <laughs> but you know actually what what probably is happening at that time is that we are sampling the the bacteria in our environment putting a hand in your mouth, you're getting colonized with that one bacteria. Your immune cells in your gut and beyond are recognizing that bacteria, establish a tolerance to that bacteria, understand that bacteria is not pathogenic, it's not a foe, and therefore there are things in the immune system that allows us to live side by side with our bacteria in our environment like that. So there, there are little nuggets uh, like that, like, you know, the, the instinctive nature of a baby to put its hand in its mouth, right? That yeah. what it's really doing is sampling the environment. And, um, you know, 
educating its body about the bacteria in the environment, educating its immune system to tolerate the, to tolerate the uh, the bacteria in its environment. Yeah, to recognize friend from foe, in other words, of which which microbes are okay and which aren't. Well, getting to this point of, I guess, healthy microbes, let's talk a bit about probiotics. I mean, from the dietary supplement industry, probiotics are, you know, make up a large portion of the economic share. Lots of people take these probiotic pills. A lot of people also eat fermented foods, um, you know, whether it's in the form of fermented dairy or um, lacto-fermented um, vegetables, pickles, things like that. So what do we know about, about these probiotic organisms and are they really beneficial to our gut? What does the science say so far? Um, bottom line, yes, they're beneficial to our gut if we choose the right ones. Okay, so mm. that's the that's the thing. So, um, you know, if if a lot of the listeners of the podcast um, are involved with fermented food, then that really was the the basis of the understanding of um, you know to to modern day probiotics. So, um, so you have you have the um, the realization or the, the observation that populations, I think it was in Mediterranean populations, that ate fermented food, especially at an older age, they lived longer. They they had a a better health span, if you like. They 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 were healthier at a, at an older age. So that was the some of the initial um, observations by Eli Meshnikov way in sort of back in the, the, the first decade of the 20th century, 1910 or so. Um, then, you know, realizing that there are microbes that elicit a beneficial effect. And then um, I think Fuller back in the 80s um, described microbes as live microbial feed supplements. I think that was the next um, sort of uh, definition of probiotics, and um, I think the, the the latest definition for a probiotic is a live micro microorganism which, when administered in sufficient amounts, can confer beneficial effects on the host. So yes, my probiotic is a real thing. Now, identifying which ones are the probiotics that's the challenge. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a main focus of my lab. Um, we have high throughput systems to test many different types of uh, or candidate probiotics um, and see if they have positive effects on, on the gut, for example, and beyond on, on the liver as well. So um, we have identified. So what is interesting is that you can have two bacteria um, from the same taxonomic group, like two lactobacillus species, mm -hmm. and um, one is probiotic and the other is not, or elicits a beneficial effect. So the the beneficial effects of probiotics is is strain specific. Some of those probiotics have something in them that um, it might be a bioactive molecule or something like that. And that bioactive molecule is absorbed and penetrates through, you know, throughout organs and systems in our, our bodies and elicits the, the beneficial effect. So that's the next frontier in probiotics. And that's the um, addressing what is lacking at the moment in probiotic research is is actual the actual mechanistic mm -hmm. explanation of why probiotics are good for you. That is what is released by the probiotic. How does our body recognize that factor that's released by the probiotic, either with receptors or, or anything like that? And then there are cell signaling pathways within our body, with cells in our body that are activated by the, this molecule from the probiotic and somehow it elicits a, a positive uh, effect. Wow. I'll give you I'll give you one example, um, uh, one cool example, and it pertains to your sort of um, uh, fermentation group. So mm -hmm. what we found is when you if you take a probiotic, uh, a lactobacillus, those are lactic acid bacteria and those are used in in your food preservation. Right. So we fed these lactic acid bacteria to mice 
and what we saw that in the gut and in the in the bloodstream as well of mice that the levels of butyrate this short chain fatty acid uh, increased and this butyrate is a fantastic compound it elicits all these super beneficial effects on the host now what we know is that the lactic acid bacteria can't directly make butyrate hmm. so what was happening is that the lactic acid um, you know you you take the lactic acid bacteria goes into your gut that makes lactate and then it's other bacteria in your gut that converts the lactate to the butyrate and then that butyrate is taken up by um, the host and it affects the immune system um, is anti-inflammatory and it's the main food source for our gut cells our gut colonocytes as well so you have this so you're giving the lactobacillus the lactic acid bacteria and what you're doing is making a food source to feed other bacteria in your gut and then it's them that actually bioconverted the lactate to butyrate and that was absorbed so that's that's a mild degree of complexity, but it gives you an example of the type of thing that that goes on within our gut as a result of eating beneficial bacteria. That's that's incredible, Renault. Because it, I mean, on one hand, I expect nature to work like this, where it's not just one thing that's doing X, Y, and Z, but it's one thing doing X, and then another species comes and helps out with the next part. We see this a lot in plant chemistry where you have these concepts of synergy of many compounds coming together to yield your desired you know, outcome. But this is even more complex because of multi-species involvement, both in the microbial level and the host level. Um, Absolutely. Amazing. And if you, know, if you eat Brussels sprouts or kale or something like that, they're super rich in all the, uh, the chemicals. And um, so, your gut bacteria has this, it's a fantastic repository of um, metabolism. Um, so uh, one step back, you know, when you compare the number of bacteria in your gut and the number of cells in our body, it's a one-to-one -one, uh, ratio. But when you, when you compare the actual um, genetic information, we have a certain amount of genetic information inside our cells. But if you take all the microbiome together, that genetic information that is in the microbiome is just like several magnitudes more than in our cells. And it's got this fantastic capacity, this metabolic capacity to take the substrates that we give it when we eat your plant material, mm -hmm. your gut microbes will then bioconvert your plant material and perhaps make all these crazy exotic compounds that yeah. we absorbed in our body and we know that these compounds can permeate every organ goes to the liver uh, primarily first it gets shunted to the liver along the portal vein then goes to the heart to the brain and um you know all, all over the body so the, the potential mechanisms involved with you know, what is it? It's the food, microbe, mm -hmm. and liver sort of um, uh, axis, if you like, of food, microbe, and then bone axis, or food, microbe, brain axis, right? You you could yeah. have chemicals produced by, by your gut that um, um, influence your mood, for example, or, or um, sort of gives you anxiety or calmness or, or everything like that. We know that chemicals um, sort of can do that, um, we don't know how many of them uh, would be affected by plant microbe and then brain diet or, or axis, right? So that's, that's a huge sort of potential avenue for research. Oh, I mean, it's, it's a tremendous avenue. I mean, we're talking about, you know, your, when, we, when we go back to kind of the Hippocratic corpus and thinking about food as medicine, I mean, this is you know, and, and on the very deep level, food as medicine, um, not only for physical health, but also mental health, when you're thinking about how, you know, the mood modifying capacities of, of, of compounds produced by these microbes, it's still an area that needs a lot of research, right? Yeah. yeah. We're, we're only at the tip of the iceberg because um, the challenge is identifying these small molecules. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, going back to the germ-free mice, 
So a germ-free mouse has zero bacteria, but then what we call is a conventional mouse, a mouse that's replete with a thousand different bacteria. So we did the metabolomics analysis of a germ-free mouse and a conventional mouse and found that the, the mouse with uh, the livers, okay, of, of these two, the liver of a germ-free mouse and the liver of a conventional mouse that has bacteria you will find that about 15 to 20% of the metabolites inside the liver um, of the conventional mouse is absent in the germ-free mouse. So about maybe 15%, 20% of the metabolites inside your body are derived from the microbes, are derived from biochemical activity of, of the microbes that, that aid in your digestion and um in the metabolism like that wow. so and it's it's actually you know you do mass spec and things like mm -hmm. that you know the, when you when you think about 15 percent of all the metabolites in our body that's thousands of metabolites right yeah you choose one that to study and choose one that you're likely to show a beneficial effect or uh, an impact on host physiology. So the limiting of the challenge in the field, it's that a daunting endeavor to do this kind of, uh, of science because you have so many different metabolites uh, produced by the microbiome and which one do you choose? Yeah. And you invest a lot of time in going after it. And if nothing comes of it, then that's a lot of wasted time, right? So that's the, um, that's the challenge at the moment in, in the field. Yeah, no, the, the chemical complexity there is, is just, I mean, almost unfathomable um, to try and chase this down on a, you know, one compound at a time kind of endeavor. Right. Well, one I, thing you, you mentioned, too, I, I want to make sure we talked about this. So we're talking about, you know, monocolonization mono with single species. But you've also done some really interesting work with basically a humanized mouse by taking the human gut microbiome. So how does that work? Uh -huh. um, how, do, how do we how do we replicate as close as we can what a what a healthy human gut microflora like look might look like in one of these mice? So absolutely. So um, when you ask healthy, um, mm. that's that's different. Means, but, but but the mm. sort of um, rather than healthy it's what's been done at, in the science at the moment is a disease associated microbiome okay so there's a lot of perhaps over the last 15 years there's a lot of science where people have taken a cohort of uh, disease patients and then a healthy cohort like 50 and 50 they've done the microbiome diversity of the disease patients and then the microbiome of the the, the healthy people and then they try and see if they group together or, or anything like that and then they can come to the conclusion that it's this microbiome diversity that causes the disease well if you just take one snapshot of one disease patients you don't know you can't establish causality you don't know whether that microbiome diversity is as a result of the disease right especially in something like Crohn's disease or IBD your microbiome is going to change because of the you know crazy inflammation you've got going on in your gut so to establish causality of a microbiome or in human that people think is associated with a disease or causal of a disease one way you can sh uh, to do it would be to take that microbiome, transplant it to another animal and see if that animal manifests that disease. Mm. But like I said, you can't just transplant it to something that's already got a microbiome because those those microbiomes that's established in your gut will fight fight off the um, mm -hmm. what's being transplanted in. So that's why you need a germ-free mouse to do this. So you take say a human your hypothesis is that this microbiome diversity um, causes obesity for example or something like that so you collect that microbiome from the human patient and then you you go through some techniques and give it to a mouse so give the inoculum to a mouse and then you have to store that mouse in a in a hermetically sealed cage after that such that no other microbes comes come in and that disrupts that. So the mouse gets colonized with this human microbiome 
Um, and then uh, in our experience, about 90% um, of that microbiome um, sort of grafts in into the mouse and the mice are very happy once they've got a human microbiome. Uh, <laughs> They, they, of course, they're on a mouse chow diet afterwards. So you, you know, to, the, 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 the experiment would be to keep feeding the human diet to the mouse, but we, we, we can't do that. We give them the mouse chow diet and there is a little bit change in, uh, of change in the microbiome. Um, but then you start on the experiment, whether that microbiome alone would cause obesity in the mouse or whether it's a combination of that microbiome and a high fat diet or a westernized diet or mm -hmm. or something like that is is the causality so so you can that that's the the approach of if somebody wants to make the claim that this microbiome diversity in humans causes this phenotype in humans well, that's one approach to prove causality is take the microbiome out of the human, put it in a germ-free mouse, colonize, and then see if the phenotype is recapitulated in, in that organism. And of course, with the obvious caveats of, yes, it's a mouse and it's on a chow diet and things like that. Yeah, I seem to recall a few years ago that that experiment had been published right yeah, and that yeah. the mice did uh, yes. become obese yes. i don't i don't recall if it was under regular chow or high fat chow but that the human microbiome was very important in that in that outcome uh, precisely yes i think with a regular um chow it was just a minor increase but with a it was exaggerated many fold with a western wow. diet mm. so yes the, that's those studies have been done so now the real question is, when are we going to get the skinny microbiome transplant? I'd like one of those <laughs> so, well, with your so, high fat diet. <laughs> so this brings us back around to probiotics. OK, yeah. so if you've got a microbiome diversity, it's got a, a thousand, you know, 500 to a thousand different gut microbes in there. If you do identify a certain 50 microbes or, or whatnot that causes obesity or, or makes obesity worse, what do you do afterwards? You know, you can't really go in and remove them, right? Because mm. how would you do that? They're entrenched. Yeah. The, you know, you basically, um, we talked about antibiotics. You can't have antibiotics that are specific for those microbes. Perhaps you could, in the future, perhaps 10, 20 years ahead, it's going to be phage therapy that might get rid of certain taxa. Um, that, that that's a more specific way of getting rid of certain microbes out of the community. But instead of trying to manipulate your extant microbiome, the microbiome that's there already, what you do is use the, the bacteria therapy, the, the, uh, the probiotic bacteria, and then you identify a probiotic bacteria that is effective in um, in against the bad effects of a Western diet. And um, we had a paper last year that identified one certain bacteria. It's a Lactococcus lactis. And um, we don't know the mechanisms of how it does this um, yet. But w when we fed mice a Western style diet that was high in um, sugar and high in fat so mm -hmm. you know that's important because i think some studies just put a high fat diet and they the forget sugar about the sugar very as important. Well. Mm -hmm. precisely so if you give mice these high sugar and high fat diets they get big globules of fat in the liver but we fed this probiotic as well um over a period of 10 weeks and the mice that got this specific probiotic and not other probiotics that we also included in the experiment um those mice they didn't gain, they gained significantly less weight and they had none of these fat droplets in the liver. Wow. So we published that last year in a gastroenterology, um, one of the AGA, the American Gastroenterology Association's um, flagship journal. So um, so if you get the right one, Cassie, <laughs> the, right, um, the right gut microbe or the, the right probiotic, it might elicit the, the, the so when when it comes down to strain types, is this particular strain, is this strain commercially available? I mean, is this something that the general public can access? It's not available yet. Mm -hmm. So what we did, it's a type strain. 
So what we did, so there is a repository of bacterial strains that have been characterized. It's called the ATCC, the American Type um, Culture Collection. And mm -hmm. we, um, we bought, uh, you know, dozens of strains from there, candidate probiotics. We put them through our discovery platform to look for their probiotic influences and identified this one that was elicited um, beneficial effects on the gut. Um, it protects against inflammation in the gut and also pr protects um, against the accumulation of fat in the liver as a result of um, a high fat diet or a Western diet, I should say. Wow. So um, you have to, we did a screen first to identify this one. And um, then we use this one in mouse experiments to, because that, that's the one thing you could never do a screen. I would never want to do a screen in mice, right? That's that, that's a bad idea. So once yeah. you one with a, that you know works in another uh, model organism, then you can use that one and perhaps do directed uh, experiments in, yeah. in, in, in mammals. And you then, did this with flies often, right? With the with the fruit fly. Yeah. Precisely. That was our screening platform. So right. there, there is um, certain conservation in the beneficial microbes that exist in Drosophila, in fruit flies, mm -hmm. and in mice and humans. So just the same that we can make germ-free mice, we can also make germ-free flies. Okay. <laughs> That's so cool. So we yeah. make germ-free Drosophila germ-free fruit flies, and then we monocolonize those mm -hmm. Drosophila one by one. And of course, experimental-wise, you can get great power in your experiments. Lots of replicates, right? Because they breed like flying, right? You know, you, <laughs> you can have... So we would take a couple hundred flies, monocolonize them with a candidate probiotic, and then we would give these um, flies an insult that would um, thought that would cause an injury in the gut mm -hmm. and then we would look at the gut and assess um, how the the flies would survive in response to this injury and a lot of bacteria a lot of these candidate pro probiotics did nothing but this one probiotic and a couple of others they elicit you know the flies survived in response to this insult that, that okay. we used and then we took just those ones that were positive in the flies. We looked at them in cell culture, in mammalian cell culture to start off with. And once we got some positive data from that, we thought, okay, this is a real positive candidate for a new probiotic. And that's when we you know, had the justification to go over into the mouse experiment. So this and, is really a, a system, systematic kind of very intricate detailed process that I guess you know, I wonder what your thoughts are on next steps. What, how, how does the, how does this process work when you identify potentially health benefiting probiotics? Is it, is there a clear path to market? Because I know, I know, I, I can just imagine what all the listeners are are thinking right now. They're they're shouting at me like, what are the best ones to take? What do we do? Like, how do you just, how do you sort through all these products that are available or maybe even not go to products, but are there certain foods, fermented foods that we should be adding and in greater level to our diets? And, and that's where we're at at the moment, Cassie. So mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm yelling the same questions as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something about it. <laughs> so, um, um, so absolutely. So, it's the regulation, right? The FDA regulation for the probiotics at the moment. If you, your um, listeners can read up on it. Um, so if you Google FDA regulation probiotics, there's, there's no, um, as, as I understand it, no probiotic bacteria that's had, um, that, that's been cleared to, as a therapy for a disease, right? Mm. So, um they are treated as supplements just in the same class as if you go to your local store and buy some vitamin d or some um a, a supplement in 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 that respect so mm -hmm. yes the next step would be to to actually do a clinical trial mm -hmm. and have a cohort of disease patients and a cohort of 
healthy patients give the probiotic and see that there's a beneficial effect of the probiotic and then of course you have to to make sure that in the healthy cohort that it does no harm right so well it's it's just like you know the coronavirus vaccine that's what we've heard about recently you you have the um the clinical trials that needed to be done for that but those clinical trials have to be financed right they yeah this is always the problem with science. These kind of studies cost a lot of money um, to run in humans. Mm-hmm. Going back, because it's um, topical at the moment, you could do the coronavirus vaccine um, because the money was, uh, try clinical trials because the money was there, the impetus was there. Um, you know, th- there were other vaccines against other viruses that those companies developed, but they didn't, the, the clinical trials hadn't been done yet because the money was not behind them to, to do those clinical trials. And we'll, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars, you know, for, for something yeah. like, for, for um, to get a product like this out to market. So that's why the probiotics remain as um, like a functional food, like a supplement in, in that class, because like you asked, the big step would be to do a clinical trial costing millions of dollars and you need somebody to take the risk of putting their money down to, to fund mm-hmm. it and see if there's an, uh, uh, you know, you get an outcome. So what before doing those clinical trials, what those companies need is what they call preclinical evidence that something works like a probiotic works on a disease model and what we're trying to gain now and our preclinical model is a mouse model okay so you do these investigations on fatty liver disease in mice or ibd in mice and, and things like that and you show that um your probiotic would be protective in that realm but you need a company that's brave enough yes. to then go from just to realize you know the 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 difference between mice and humans and you know mice they live in the cage their microbiome is um, homogenized you know the the five mice that you would have in a cage their microbiome is all the same um if you have multiple cages you can have differences in the microbiome of of mice between cages but at least they're all on the same food okay I told you all that because if you want to translate that to humans, the heterogeneity is immense in in the microbiome diversity. Everybody has their own microbiome diversity. And if you think that this extra bacteria that you're going to feed, uh, it might work in some patients that has a certain microbiome diversity and not in others. There's Mm. all these variables, all this heterogeneity that's inherent in our um, in society. You know, and I'm sure you've talked about it before, is whether they eat, uh, the, the, the diet is a factor, whether they've taken antibiotics is a factor, the cleanliness of the house, whether they have the dog and, you know, whether they have kids and, and everything like that. So that also would be a challenge to the next step in taking probiotics from uh, supplements from functional foods to actual, you know, approved FDA approved um, therapies. Yeah. yeah, and medicines. That's amazing. Well, I mean, I think you've given us a, a lot of things to think about, starting with the evolutionary perspectives of, you know, multicellular organisms being so intricately intertwined with with microbes. I mean, and that that goes, as you said, going back billions of years, um, and you know really great perspective on the complexity of these questions. Even in a controlled laboratory setting, it can get really complex. But as you said, in humans, we have so many different variables, different microbiomes, different foods people are eating, exposures. It gets really, really complex. But at the same time, I, I'm i just so excited about this field of science. And I think that you know when it comes to the future of health, I think that understanding the role of the gut microbiome is going to be fundamental um you know for the future of human health absolutely and like i said it's these little molecules that are produced by the gut microbiome these thousands of different molecules 
And like, like I said, we're only at the tip of the iceberg of identifying how these bioactive small metabolites produced mm -hmm. by the microbiome enter our bodies, enter throughout our bodies, including gestating babies in utero. So um, um, things okay. like that. So the, um, the um, uh, just to mention, we just got a paper um, accepted, um, Cassie. So basically what we did was, I mentioned this butyrate compound before. So mm -hmm. this is a compound that's made by bacteria. So we took some pregnant mice, we gave them, supplemented them with butyrate and with this microbe, this our new probiotic, and just during pregnancy, we let the babies be born and we let the, them aged, aged those offspring until they were six weeks old and those offspring were protected against a gut inflammation. So just... Wow. So we're, we're just that that was accepted in a pediatric research recently. So so not only do these gut microbe metabolites affect us, but they 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 can permeate. And that's an example of how a gut metabolites can permeate throughout our body for for certain. But it cross, crosses the placental barrier as well into a developing um, uh, fetus, if you like. Mm -hmm. and causes beneficial effects on that. So that really, I think, is the next 20 years in microbiome research is identifying the, the small molecules produced by the microbiome and how they affect our health and disease. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Not only what your health, but for, for gestating mothers, like what's going on with the baby. Wild. <laughs> And yeah. on to the next generation, you know, <laughs> via yeah. the gut microbe, you know, that that sort of that's um that's the idea. Well, as we as we wrap up, Ryan, I'll, I'll ask one last question. This is when I ask of every guest. And I was wondering if you can share with us one of your favorite recipes. I know you're from Wales, maybe you have a traditional Welsh dish or maybe a fermented food. I don't know. What, what What's your favorite food to share with the audience? Well, of course, there, there's no other dish, but but Welsh lamb, right? Ah. <laughs> and um, I think you, you might taste some pretty soon if, if you're taking a vacation in Wales. So yeah. when you go over there, um, do um, do have some, some Welsh lamb. So, of course, um, I spent my formative years in, in Wales. I was raised on a sheep farm in Wales. And um, I see these lambs eating grass, and they're all natural and everything like that. And... Um, my favorite cut of the lamb is the shoulder. Mm. So lamb shoulder. And um, in Wales, we used to cook the whole, roast the whole ram shoulder. But when I came here to the States, um, you guys like grilling, of course. It, mm -hmm. Grilling's not a, such a big thing in, in the UK, or perhaps it is now, but grilling is, is obviously a big thing over here. So um, one of the dishes that I take is, have lamb shoulder steaks okay nice then add marinade do a simple marinade in um just your your regular uh, lemon juice olive oil salt and pepper and rosemary and some garlic as well and mm -hmm. then you leave that for about two hours or so and then bring them out pat them dry and then have a searing hot grill and mm -hmm throw them on on the grill and it's better if if your chops has some bones still in it such that you know that they're cooked when the meat falls off the bone that's mm -hmm. what you look for and then um so me and my wife tasted some of this uh, on saturday night and she nice. was like wow <laughs> she cook this because you know um guys in the states over here don't eat so much lamb yeah so, but when it's um you know, uh, hoping that I took the best of what I, my knowledge in Wales about the best cut of lamb. And um, and then I cooked it more American style, you know, on the grill. And it was really tasty. And of course, with some homemade mint sauce, right? We have a big mint plant, out, plant outside, take some mint, and then you grind it in some salt, add some our red wine vinegar, some good quality olive oil and just make a paste of it. And that's your, um, that's your own uh, mint oh my sauce. Gosh. 
<laughs> so, My mouth is watering. That sounds so good. That sounds great. So well, for, I hope you get a chance to sample some of that on your vacation. Yeah, I hope so too. I hope so too. And, and for the audience, I'll definitely be posting some photos come the end of October, early November. Um, I'll be traveling into Wales and including a Snowdonia National Park, which I'm really excited about seeing. Really beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Reinhardt, for coming on the show. This has been just incredibly insightful to understand the complexities of the gut microbiome. Um, and I look forward to, to reading more about your research in this area. Thank you for having me, Cassie. Great. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Skype. You can find this and all of our other episodes on Apple Podcasts. You can also check out the video version of this episode at the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel. Thanks so much to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth. And thank you to you, our audience, for tuning in each week. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>